My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. So, uh, thank you to Amy Velosen, who just sent me a text who said I didn't unmute myself online. So, they've been watching me with no voice. So, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, can't read lips because they're covered. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, Miss Nancy Miller, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so we were just talking about the answers to what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far. Talking about distraction, how easy it is to get distracted, and how um, we see the disciples distracted. We see the Pharisees and the scribes you know, running off doing their own thing. Uh, and at the same time, Jesus involved in these macro and micro events all the way through the Gospels. Um, I, I sometimes wonder if he, obviously he was aware, but what that felt like to have the weight of 4,000 plus years of prophecy riding on your shoulder while you're also herding these cats and dogs and fighting off the fair. I mean, it's just, like, he's literally changing all of history and dealing with all this little stuff at the same time. It's just, and I, I, will, I have found that I have worked for people who were good at one or the other, right? Making massive change or dealing with the minutia. There are not a lot of people that can pull off both of these things. And just another amazing thing about Jesus. So there we go. So now you can hear me online. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. When I look at my comments, they exploded. So thank God for people who give feedback. All right, so let's go ahead and read uh, through the first half of Mark chapter 14. We'll read verses uh, 1 through 31, and uh, we'll go from there. So Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they were sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and take it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So we move into this uh, next section of Mark chapter 14. So we've talked about the plot to kill Jesus, Jesus' anointing at Bethany. And then Judas last week uh, really transitioning over to the formal process of betraying Jesus. And now we move into this text, verses uh, 12 through 21, the Passover with the disciples. And this is really, this is really like the, the preview of the Passover with the disciples, the first paragraph here, which is what we'll be talking about today. So we'll start in verse 12. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, so this is what we talked about, a couple of weeks ago with the calendar and making sure we were aware of when this was. So this is probably the 14th of uh, Nissan, uh, which is why I pronounced the car company that way. People mock me. It's like the Hebrew way to say the word. So why would you not say it that way, right? This is a long-running joke that Julie and I have with each other. This is what I'm talking about here. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover. Now, how many of you have a copy of the scripture where it says lamb included there? Lamb's actually not in the text. It's just Passover. They put lamb there so that we, as 21st century believers, would go, oh, yeah, 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 because there's a sacrifice that happens before you actually can eat the sacrifice. This is the order of things, right? So they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his, Jesus' disciples. So this is plural. They said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And, and this, is not a, uh, this is not a, are we doing that this year? Right? It's not a matter of, well, this is, op- this is not optional. This is a, you're going to do this. It's just a matter of location. So where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So a couple of interesting points about this question. Uh, first is the word for prepare. Uh, it's an interesting word as you go through Mark's gospel. It first shows up in Mark 1, chapter 3. So let's flip back over there to the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So Isaiah is the one talking about using this word. Behold, I have sent my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that second prepare, the one that shows up in verse 3, is the one. So who's the messenger? We talk about in verse 4. John the Baptist is the messenger, right? So 
John is preparing the way for Jesus. The next time it shows up is in Mark chapter 10, verse 40. So this is the, uh, <laughs> the arguments about who's the greatest and who gets to sit where and the next time you board a plane, just this should be our, our focal passage, right? It's, just, it's not about where you sit, it's about just being included. Uh, they said, uh, let's see, Jesus says to them, uh, in verse 37, they said to him, grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And as it turned out, they were not. And Jesus said to them, well, they weren't in the short term, they were in the long term. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So you get this sense as you go through Mark's gospel that this word is not a short-term word. This is not a, like, Isaiah is writing this about the person that's going to forerun the Messiah. Jesus uses this word about the end of all time, who's going to be sitting where and what's going to be done at what time then. So you, you are spanning thousands of years with just these two instances of this word for prepare. So if we go back to Mark 14, verse 12, where will you have us go and prepare? I think we're kind of supposed to be reminded of how this word has been used so far in Mark's gospel. That this is part of a much larger story that goes backward and forward in time. And this is the, this is the fulcrum on which all of it kind of hinges. So where do you go prepare in order that, the Hina is not uh, translated in our English scriptures, in order for you to go and eat the Passover. So verse th 13, and he apostelloed two of his disciples. And I... I love how Jesus gives them opportunity to practice what they're going to need to do when he's gone. So this is the, uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but the, the best training, the, the, the training approach that works for me very well is the approach Jesus used in the scripture, which was, you watch me do it, we'll do it together, I'll watch you do it, I leave. Like four really simple steps. It's a really good way to train kids too. So you just, let's, you watch me, we do it together, I watch you, I leave. And you're on your own. So he's giving them an opportunity to function as apostles by being sent. That's actually what the word here is for sent. So he sends two of his disciples. What's, what are their names? What does it say in the text? It doesn't, we don't know which two, right? <clears throat> It would have been ironic had it been James and John. <laughs> We're going to send you to ahead to get the seats ready for everybody else, right? I don't know if it was, but he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go. So the plural present active imperative is another group standing order. So we're just going to keep going and going and going into the city. So what city would we be talking about right here? Jerusalem, yes. So we're shockingly close to Jerusalem. He's, he's probably in Bethany at this point. Uh, so go into the city and... And what happens next reminds me a lot of the beginning of Mark chapter 11. So I just want to go back there and remind us what happened in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a coat tied, 
on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the outdoor outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing it? Untying a colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And you're like, what? <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> you're you're going to go, you're going to find a colt, tie it up, take it. Because I need it. And they get this explanation given to the owner, and, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What? I mean, this would cost money. This would have been a resource that somebody would have valued. This would have been something that was, that was important to a family or a person. And I, I get that same kind of a sense when I read Mark 14, verse 13. It says, go into a city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Well, who got him ready? Who got the guy with the cult ready? Who got the guy that the, the guy with the water is just going to randomly walk into some house and there's going to be everything ready to go? And it feels like something's orchestrated here, right? So don't miss the obvious that God is absolutely working in what I would argue is these shockingly small little things. He's a guy carrying around a jar of water. I don't know how you view your obedience to what God has called you to do as, but it was critically important in building the faith of these disciples that there be a guy carrying a jar of water. And we don't get any sense that he's a believer, that he knew the larger story that he was a part of, that he realized that he was going to be documented for all time and... Some middle-aged white guy a couple thousand years later is going to be talking about it. I mean, this is just, it, it's just stunning to me. The detail, and when you, you talked about this a second ago, Dave, I was like, well, you're just going to tell the whole lesson today, so that's awesome. But this is, this is what God does. He cares about these massive stories, but he cares about the details going through. This, this to me, is the overwhelming message of Genesis chapter 1. Flip over there for just a second. So we teach our kids that Genesis chapter 1 is about God made everything. And, and I will say, yes, he did. But there's something else that's going on in Genesis chapter 1. And it's this drumbeat of the, the reality that when God says it, it's going to happen. Look at Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of verse 6, in the, in the midst of the water, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees and fruit, which is their seed. Each brought forth vegetation uh, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. Let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God says it, and it was so. God says it, and it was so. God says it, and it was so. Moses starts off his massive tome with this resounding drumbeat 
of the reliability of God's word. And what does Jesus do over and over and over again for his disciples? My word is reliable. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It's going to happen. Even down to some dude walking around with a jar of water. <laughs> this is just another deposit in the bank of reliability of God's word. Because there was going to come a day when these disciples would need to make a very large withdrawal from that bank. And their lives would depend on it. And they actually did. They believed. And Jesus is helping their belief with all these little things. So again, I'll say it again. I don't know what your... Uh, uh, yes, I knew Amy would say something about puggle lessons. It is a great puggle lesson, yes. Uh, so I don't know what your jar of water it is that you are carrying around in obedience. Uh, but be faithful in that. And it may seem like a shockingly inconsequential small thing that nobody sees, but God always sees faithfulness. And it is a good and glorious thing. So, a man carrying a jar of water. and <laughs> So he wasn't just like for three seconds carrying it. This is a present active participle. He'd been doing this a while. And, and he may have just had an urge. I don't know. I don't want to start guessing here, but... He'd been doing this a hot minute. So he's carrying this jar of water, and he will meet you. This is a future indicative. This is going to happen. So what do you do? Follow him. <laughs> and at this point, I'm, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus knows this guy. And he knows his like, water-carrying routine. All right. We'll, we'll, just, we'll go with that. Fine. So follow him. And wherever he enters... You see how random this feels? Like he didn't put any constraints on. Like wherever he goes, say, another imperative, to the master of the house. Now this is a really funny Greek word, so I want you to look at your handout. It's about a third of the way down, page 464. The Greek word is oikodespotes. So oiko is the house. It's the concept of a, a house or a family. And the despotes is the where we would get our English word despot. So if you think like, you could, you could loosely translate this family dictator. Probably a little strong, but this is how you could like literally get the words out. So go to the master of the house and say, and the, the Greek word hoti there is the, basically their Greek quotation mark. The teacher says, and every time I read this, I laugh, because if you look at the... Uh, definite article immediately before the word teacher. Sometimes we translate those into English and sometimes we don't. We basically just use them when we need to and we don't use them when we don't need to to make the sentence flow and smooth and fluid. It's completely fine. They don't carry any substantial um, weight from a translation perspective. You could easily say teacher says, which is how I read it, which immediately reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life, the teacher says, when it ain't right, all that garbage. So the teacher says, where is my guest room? Now, this quote coming from literally anybody other than Jesus is going to come off as quite arrogant. Would you, am I, am I okay going that far? I think I'm okay going that far. I have never, so Sean, I've been to your house before. Have I ever walked in and said, where's my guest room? No. And, and what would your response be? <laughs> you, you're like, okay. But, but what if I sent Dave ahead 
and told Dave to ask you, where's Jim's guest room? Like, we were ratcheting up the level of, like, brashness here. What's that again? Oh, really? You've had that done to you before? Wow, okay. Okay. Oh, they didn't put in a reservation. Yikes, yikes. Whoops. So where is my guest room? And, and it's, it says my in the Greek. This is a first singular pronoun. Where's my guest room? Where's my lodging place? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. This is still in the part of the, the text where Jesus is giving the directions. He's just explaining to them what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 15. And he is the master of the house, the despot. Will show you, the will show is a future indicative, a large upper room. Now, I would argue that this is, this is possibly the most famous upstairs room in all of literature. <laughs> um, and we don't know the name of the guy carrying the pot, of the jug of water. We don't know the game, name of the guy whose house it is. It's just people that were obedient to what Jesus' disciples told them. So a large upper room furnished. Now this furnished is perfect passive. So the perfect means it's completed action with the results continuing. So this is, this is not something that they asked for and then they had to go get ready. It was already ready. It just needed somebody to occupy. And the passive means somebody had done it to this room. It's all furnished and ready. The word furnished actually has another definition to spread uh, as a carpet and it's used in the uh, in Mark 11 verse 8 talk about flexibility of definitions here Mark 11 8 and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields this is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem this is the idea that the road is prepared the road is ready it's got everything that it needs for the king to come. It's the exact same kind of concept that happens here with the Passover, with this upper room. Everything's ready for the king to come. Good question. Good question. Could this have been somebody that was already prepared, ready for the massive influx of visitors because of the Passover? Absolutely. So Absolutely. Somebody not have been more strict for somebody to go in and say, hey, where's room Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I don't think it would have been a big deal for somebody to have a room ready. I think it was a big deal for Jesus to call it my room. Like, that's the. It's still this dude's house, right? That's that's his. You know? Does that make sense? That's right. It was exceedingly specific. It was that place. It was yes. It was very very detailed. So go uh, ready there and prepare for us. Yes. More than likely, if that was the case, he would have been renting this place out. That's right. So Jesus 
Uh, I don't know. I don't want to go that far. Who? So, so let's let's rewind and go back to the um, <laughs> the military industrial complex, right? The the religious industrial complex of the temple structure. So everybody in Jerusalem knew what would ha what was going to happen, when it was going to happen. They knew the calendar. They knew the cycle. They knew thousands of people are coming in. Um, we don't get a sense uh, from really, I would argue, all but one. Was he a priest? All but one priest who was a who appeared to, for a moment, be a, a genuine seeker of Jesus Christ. It feels like pretty much everybody involved in this whole structure, in this financial structure, was mostly corrupt. Um, so you wouldn't do this for, like, I'm just going to do this out of the, the generosity of my heart, right? Um, for, for me, I can relate to this kind of a concept. Uh, I grew up in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and once a year, there was a big event called the Celebration. It was a horse show. And thousands and thousands, this is when I was a kid, it's not this way anymore, but thousands and thousands of people would come in and we would actually rent out our homes and then go on vacation with the money that they would pay us for a week. And it was like, I don't know why y'all want our house, but okay, cool. But we didn't ever let nobody stay there for free. Like, you're crazy. <laughs> We're going to charge you for this, right? Um, so amazing stuff here, I think, still. So, so they said, there prepare for us in verse 16. So now we get to the actual activity of the disciples, right? And the disciples, so watch what they do here. They set out. They went to the city. They found it just as they had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Yes, sir. Yeah, that word prepare is a it's a loaded word, right? There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of work going on. Absolutely. So what I want you to see is Jesus gives these um, I still just feels like really oddly specific directions. And the disciples just obey. And I, for as much time as we spend breaking down and analyzing their disobedience. I just want to give these two credit for they just followed the dang directions, you know? And it was weird, and they did it, and it was right, and we get them to remember them for it, and we have this amazing Passover last supper because of that. Because of their obedience in this one strange little thing. So... I struggled with this lesson a couple of different ways. One, it's shockingly simple, and it's, there's not a lot like, actually going on. The Greek is not really complicated. The, nobody really makes a big deal about their obedience. It's just expected. But they do it. <laughs> they actually do it, right? So I just want to recognize these two. Uh, unnamed still, right? There's, nobody, there's not a single person named in this entire story except for Jesus, right? He's the only one mentioned. 
Is that right? Yes. Wait, is his name even mentioned? Or is it just pronouns? Not a single name. <laughs> That's amazing to me. Jim. Yes, sir. Yeah, so maybe, maybe the thought we leave with is um, Jesus knows, Jesus sees, faithfulness is a good thing, and faithfulness in little things is a good thing. It doesn't have to be some massive production, uh, you know, all of this. Little stuff matters, guys. And I, I am intentionally being as generic and vague as I can on the application here because I have no idea what jar of water God has called you to carry. I have no idea what room God has called you to prepare. Uh, but be found faithful with that. Right? And when we are not, let's jump back to Mark chapter 1 and repent and believe in the gospel again and get back on the obedience train. Because that was I, was, I was actually, I missed my... Uh, uh, Tim and Myla Archer, uh, I had in my notes, had they been here today, and we are praying for them, for them caring for um, the, the mom there. Uh, had they been here today, I would have had them lead us in the children's song, O-B-E-D. Like this, is, this is what that looks like for adults, like just doing what Jesus said. Um, I read a couple articles this week that talked about it's it's ne the bar has never been this shockingly low to be a Christian. Don't be a jerk and love people. You know, that's a, that's a pretty low bar right now. Um, and just obey the words of Jesus Christ. Because the king is coming. I think I could talk for three days about this text. <laughs> All right, so that's Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through uh, 16. And we will pick up next week, Lord willing, with verse 17, where we actually get into the Passover meal itself. And just as a reminder, so a quick uh, trivia question. How old was Jesus when he died? Anybody know? 33. Why do we think he was 33? How do we know it was three years of ministry? There you go. It's all about the calendar. If nobody's keeping track of how many Passovers, we'd have no idea how old Jesus was, as if this is the you know, end-all, be-all data point for all things. 
but uh, it does help us peg where he was and what was going on. So just remember, this is at least the third. So as we get ready to talk about what Jesus is about to do this third time with his disciples, this one he changes. This is the one where he knocks over the domino and you're like, oh, wait. So this is connected to that? And, and that? Yes. He, I, I will argue he spans uh, several thousand years of Israeli history with what he is about to do in the text that we talk about next week. So with that as kind of a framework, I, I just didn't want you to think that he did this three times in a row and this was new and normal for the, no, 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 they only got this once. This is pretty important stuff. So with that, uh, that's the lesson for today. So thanks for coming. And uh, you should have a weekly update at your table. So make sure your name is at the bottom of that. Share any prayer requests. Uh, I would love for you to take a section and pray for it. Uh, and then if you have any prayer requests that are listed, if you want to make any updates or changes to those, please do so as well. And uh, that's our lesson for today. So thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.